Welcome to the Fully Delighted Podcast, a hopeful and helpful resource from South Mountain Community Church, a multi-site church in Utah. Each week we will be hearing from our staff as we explore what makes SMCC unique, as well as what it means to be fully devoted and fully delighted in Jesus Christ. We hope this podcast can be a helpful resource for you to take your next step with Jesus. Welcome to another season of the Fully Delighted Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm excited to be here with you today. And uh, we're starting a new season. We've taken a break for a little bit, um, and uh, we're kind of starting up in the middle of the summer. But we have a new series for you, and we are going to be talking about core beliefs today of SMCC. We'll dive into that a little bit more in just a second. With me today, sitting on my right and on my left, I've got Eric Nelson, our lead pastor here at SMCC, glad to have Eric back. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really good to be with you, Adam, and you, Trevor. I'm really excited for this new season. Um, I'm really excited for our first series together in this new chapter of SMCC to be a series about our core beliefs, which are really the core beliefs of biblical Christianity mm-hmm. uh, and the doctrine of SMCC. So we hope this podcast lives on for years to come, that people who are new to Utah can refer to, people who are wondering what Christianity is and investigating it, they can refer to this. Uh, possible staff hires who want to know if, if they align with SMCC, they could even listen to this. So right. it really is going to be a, a helpful series for so many people wondering uh, what are those core truths of Christianity? What are those core truths of SMCC? So yeah. we wanted to do a podcast in the middle of the summer because we're in this middle of the, in the middle of the series, and um, man, people in the lobby, the people I've been talking to, it just became really clear to us that this is valuable, and so we're gonna we're gonna do it in podcast form. Yeah, yeah. So glad to have you here, Eric. Uh, we got Trevor on my other side. Trevor is our pastor of teaching and discipleship. I think I got that right. Yeah, our titles yep. are going are going everywhere now. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, excited to be here. Uh, snuck in right at the end of the first chapter, I guess you could say, in the yep. life of SMCC. The last and page of the first chapter of SMCC. You're on it, man. Yeah, exactly. That's right, yeah. yeah, and excited to be on the first page of the second chapter as well. Yeah, and you've been here a few months now. You've been on an episode before. In our previous season, yeah, a couple ones. End of yeah. First Corinthians. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm. Yeah, I'm glad to have the starting back up, and I'm glad that uh, we've got some some great material that we're crafting for our messages, and then as well for podcast form. And let me just say this is interesting. If you uh, are listening to or attend our campuses and are a part of our Redeeming Dogma series, uh, you'll notice that we're taking on some pretty. Um, tough and and broad and and deep subjects for a thirty minute message on a Sunday. So this is gonna op- we're gonna crack the lid open a little bit more. This is gonna be maybe like forty five minutes. But obviously, I mean, Eric, you and Trevor could talk about this, and I'm not exaggerating for hours. We sh- we certainly could, especially with our first doctrinal statement that we're gonna hit today. Um, there's so much to it, so much depth. And so we're going to try and just add on to what you heard on Sunday. If you haven't heard that Sunday message, you could jump over to our Messages podcast, jump over to our YouTube channel. Yep. Uh, of course, show up each Sunday in the series. Um, and we're going to go deeper than, than we were able to, to go on, on Sunday. So I'm really excited about that. Now, to sort of frame up why doctrine matters, uh, we made this point on Sunday, and I just want everybody to remember this. Uh, we all have a doctrinal statement for life. Now, when you hear doctrinal, people think, that's big and that's churchy, right. and that doesn't apply to me. Well, everybody has a core set of beliefs or values that guides their life, and those statements are probably not written down anywhere, except your text messages and the memes you like, and if you were to record your conversations throughout the day, your doctrine yep. would become clear to you. Yep. And so uh, I think it's worth it to reflect on what are my core doctrinal statements for life. And, um, and we've called it dogma, redeeming dogma, because... 
we live in a culture that dogs dogma. I said that in the sermon dogs with a smile dogma. on my face, but uh, there's this negative connotation out there um, with dogma, you know? Uh, my truth, my truth, you can have your truth, but don't try to get me to believe your truth, which is someone trying to get another person to believe their truth. Yeah. Um, it's, it's easy to dog dogma, but anybody who does that is just dogmatic about their disregard for dogma. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. self-defeating statement. It's poison from the inside. Mm-hmm. And so the question that I think we should all be asking uh, in light of our core beliefs, because everybody has them, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, how should I live? Mm-hmm. Um, the question we should ask is, am I dogmatic about the right thing? Am I dogmatic about the right thing? Sure. And that's why it's called redeeming dogma. There actually is a worldview that's good, that redeems our life, redeems the world, and that dogma, redeeming dogma, as we've called it, is something we should study. And that's what this uh, this podcast season is really all about. I love that. So basically, if there's somebody listening and, and, and they're trying to figure things out for themselves, you're saying, hey, just maybe just recognize the fact that you have some kind of dogma or doctrinal statement or some way of living that you think is correct. Like, don't yeah. just disregard as like, oh, no, you know, just recognize that you have that and maybe try to seek more of what, what do you yeah. actually mm-hmm. believe is Did right. you guys ever watch that old movie uh, called Dogma? Did you guys ever see that movie mm-hmm. that came I, out? I know that's where Jay and Silent Bob come from. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh-huh. That's not really my style. I'm more of a Happy Gilmore guy, but um, <laughs> Dogma is just such an interesting word. I, I had to look it up for our series. I really wanted to help people know where that word came from. It's a Greek word, dogmatos. It's a set of opinions. Uh-huh. Um and really, of course, our set of opinions come from our set of beliefs or our doctrinal statements for life. And yep. so um, we think it's okay to assert your beliefs in this world. You can do so in a helpful way, a loving way, a kind way, and have a robust mm-hmm. discussion. Mm-hmm. So that's where redeeming dogma comes in. We're trying to redeem that word a little bit with beliefs that redeem our world. So yep. yeah. um, that's where we're headed. And with that, I think we can dive into the first one, um, the first doctrinal statement of SMCC. Who wants to read it? Yeah. Uh, whoever wants to read it can go Trevor, for it. Trevor, I got it here. <laughs> All right. I'll read it out. SMCC doctrinal statement number one, uh, number one of eight, reads like this. We believe the Bible to be inspired and infallible, and as such, the supreme authority in faith and life. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Uh, you <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, one sentence that, like you said, Adam, has, uh, I mean, hours and hours and hours worth of conversation behind it, but really... Years and years of theological study. I mean, you can mm-hmm. go to a library, jump on Amazon, you know, books that are as thick as you've ever seen, right. diving mm-hmm. into each part of this. And so, um, you know, central to a Christian worldview is this um, understanding. When we say belief, it's not something we want to be true or something without evidence. So, you know, we kind of put our faith in something because we just think it is a nice thought. It's mm. there's something with so much evidence, the most logical conclusion for our worldview is to embrace it as truth. That's Mm. what we mean by we believe. We accept, all right? We embrace. Those are other ways. Um, We embrace this truth that the Bible is. We accept this reality that the Bible is. Mm -hmm. Those are, that's what we mean by we believe in, in each of these Mm -hmm. statements. And, um, what, what ins- so let's break it down here, but central to a Christian worldview is that the Old Testament and New Testament is God's Word. Now, that's mm-hmm. Christianese for when the Bible speaks, it is God speaking. Yeah. That's how I like to talk about it. When that's we good. say it's God's Word. So you guys are listening to my words right now. It's me speaking. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's me communicating and revealing uh, what's in me. So when the Bible speaks, it reveals who God is, and um, that is... Uh, 
a really wild thought. <laughs> I understand that. For Christians, like, of cool. course, it's God's Word. <laughs> it's, yeah. I believe in my whole life. Well, let's get let's break it down slowly, what each part of this is, is really all about. Okay. Um, in the message, we talked about circular reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trevor, uh, you know, what are some... Let's start here. What are some of the objections to this doctrinal statement? Because I want to hit those, and then I want to dive deeper into where this statement mm-hmm. came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even just picking on some of the terms, like inspired, I think the argument against that would be, well, it's not inspired. It's just a collection of documents written by people, um, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and it's nothing other than that. Um, yeah, written by written by man. So come yeah, it's on, written it's written by not, people. Yeah, yeah, it's like it didn't drop out of heaven yeah. one day. So it's written by people. So people are broken. People are flawed. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yes. Yeah. They wrote their own agendas into it to gain power and you know, women yeah. and money. And so that's a, that's yep. a good objection. Yeah. It's a common one. Yeah. That's one. Another one, uh, kind of playing off of infallible would be that, well, we see discrepancies within it. Mm-hmm. So there are errors and it's, uh, it's not infallible. It is fallible. Mm-hmm. It is flawed. And so how can we trust this? And mm-hmm. that, that could get at the original writings and it could even get at that. The, what we have is no longer, um, the, the Bibles that we currently have aren't actually the same as what was originally written. So mm-hmm. yep. kind of that claim of fallibility can come in those two different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So you've talked about a, a couple things already. Uh, transmission of the Bible. How did we get it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've hinted at translation of the Bible. Um, do we have mm-hmm. accurate translations? You've hinted at text and canon things. You know, we don't, we don't have any original copies of these documents. So um, do we really know what they said? So we have some text and canon issues. Uh, inerrancy, infallibility. I mean, you have all these things built into this uh, statement. So I hope to to break it down and really uh, give people all the all the language they need to walk through this statement and and really walk through it with a friend who would say um, they they don't buy it. And so mm-hmm. yeah. I want to I want to do that uh, with us, Trevor. Where should we start? I mean, as you think of all those mm-hmm. issues um, with this doctrinal statement, where should we begin? Do you think? Yeah, I feel like, uh, first off, even just kind of following the flow of the message, it's interesting to... I think we should revisit the Jesus argument for inspiration. Let's but do just, it. Just because um, a lot of times when people hear a statement like this, you know, the first question you ask is, well, why? Why do you believe that? And a lot of times the argument that's given is uh, circular. Like, why do you believe it's inspired? Well, because it says it's inspired. Right. And, well, why do you believe it? Because it's inspired. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we, we made that point and people laughed, you know? Uh, and, yeah. and I've been mm-hmm. I've been on both sides of that. As a non-Christian, I remember thinking, my friends were crazy. Oh, you believe the Bible is God's Word. Why? Because it says so in the Bible. Why do you believe what's in the Bible? Because it's God's Word. Well, how do you know that? Because it says so in the Bible. And you're like, this is <laughs> this is wild. Uh, you guys you guys are silly. And then I became a Christian. They're like, Eric, why do you believe it? I'm like, well, 2 Timothy. I'm like, well, that's in the Bible. And I'm like okay, what does in the Bible mean? You know what yeah, I mean? So you have right. this you have this thought that you could even argue, no, it's not. It's in the Bible for a reason, but Paul wrote it to Timothy in a moment in time, and it was not in the Bible at that time. <laughs> does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, right. uh-huh. So our, we're, we're, you know, we're saying, it's, it's worth saying, okay, 66 different documents eventually made up the Bible. Yeah. Why were those documents, and we'll talk about it, seen as authoritative and inspired before they were all bound together in one book with pretty leather on the front and gold embossed, you know, <laughs> names, you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, it, is, yeah. it is very interesting. I think yeah. when people say, well, the Bible says, um, 
it's almost misleading from the beginning. Now, that's shorthand for all the 66 books that make up what we call the Bible, the authoritative, canonized group of writings. You know, we call it the Bible, but there was a day where there was Christianity and there was no the Bible. Right. Is that, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the Bible that gave us Christianity. It wasn't... Uh, Christianity that just gave us the Bible. It was the resurrection mm-hmm. that produced Christianity mm-hmm. that would later be written down in a way that co- was called the Bible, which is just Latin for like books, right? Mm. It's just it's just the book. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really all that it is. But in our in our Western world, we hear Bible and, and it, we automatically go to somewhere spiritual, maybe mystical, maybe magical, and that kind of throws us off from the from the start. Yeah, and just a note, because I know that you're going to kind of briefly touch on that Jesus inspiration, uh, whatever we call methodology of, of figuring out, you know, what do we believe about the Bible? What's interesting is that I think so much of Christianity, especially in Western culture, um, because it's so readily available, a lot of Christianity is just based on, like, the Bible. We have the Bible and all these things, and I think there have been pastors and theologians who have put it more rightly. Like, Christianity doesn't, like you said, Christianity doesn't start necessarily at the Bible, right. Christianity mm-hmm. revolves around the resurrection. Right. So sometimes in, in, in the church and Christianity, we get that kind yeah. of skewed a little bit. The message was there. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't packaged in a Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it was carried on the lips of eyewitnesses and eyewitness, uh, you know, close acquaintances of eyewitnesses. And I just think that's a really helpful, helpful place to start. But in the West, to your point, it's been commodified and commercialized. Mm-hmm. And so like every, you know, thing in the West. And so you get a, a brand and a logo and and money behind it and it gets it gets packaged in a nice sweet way and there's value behind some of that. Mm-hmm. But it really throws us off when we when we start thinking of what even is the Bible. Right, um, right. So yeah. Trevor, why don't you take us through that Jesus argument? I think it's the least circular approach. Um, to this doctrinal statement and then we'll break down all the things around the statement itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a quick... Well, it's not super quick, but uh, I'll make it quick. <laughs> All right. Three-step argument uh, for the really the inspiration of the Bible that goes like this. It's all based on Jesus. So it actually doesn't start with the Bible. It starts with Jesus. Step one being, if Jesus is historical, then we can know things about him from the Gospels, the, the books being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament that give us a record of his life, death, and resurrection. And and we know he's historical be, because of so many things. You know, mm-hmm. somebody on our YouTube channel, I think they were trolling us, but they were they like, were. Jesus is fictional. <laughs> and it's like, man, what evidence do you have for that claim? I mean, the right, evidence right. flies in the face of that. I mean, I yeah. don't care who you look at, non-Christian sources, Christian sources, ancient, modern. I mean, it is basically an airtight case that Jesus lived yeah. in the yep. first century in the Palestinian world, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, you just can't get around that. Right. It's more yeah. of like the the minutia or the, the things to work through is not really, was Jesus alive? It's like, that's pretty final. Like, the, mm-hmm. it's yeah. just, that's established. So really, it's more of what do you think about Jesus? Who was Jesus? Right. Like, that, those are the real yeah. questions that come into tension. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so if he's historical, we can know things about him from... The Gospels from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, not that we know, and again, the first step's not establishing that this is God's Word. It's just saying that because He's historical and these are eyewitness accounts, then we can know something about Him from them. Mm-hmm. So step two, if Jesus predicted His death and resurrection, which is something He does not just in one, not in two, but in all four of those books of the Gospels, if He predicted His death and resurrection, taught that it would happen, and then it really did happen, then He was approved by God and is Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, in the message on Sunday, we didn't dive into the resurrection, mm-hmm. um, but I think you can get to an argument for the resurrection without the Bible too. 
mm-hmm. um, interestingly enough. And that is uh, the w- what his followers did, what outside sources claimed, um, the fact that his body was never produced, what's the most logical uh, explanation for the explosion of the Christian church in the face mm-hmm. of all of Rome's persecutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at early testimony, eyewitness testimony, excruciating testimony. There's this a line of thinking I got from Frank Turk. He has all these E's. Extra biblical testimony, mm-hmm. embarrassing testimony. Yeah. These are people speaking of the resurrection uh, in ways that exist outside of the Bible that would um, not exist unless it actually happened. And so... Um, we didn't have time to dive into that uh, mm-hmm. argument on Sunday, but um, you know, of course, to embrace the resurrection, you have to understand that that is a miracle. Well, once again, if mm-hmm. and we've talked about this in the podcast, if the creation of the universe happened, then the greatest miracle, which is uh, you know something from nothing, uh, mm-hmm. already happened, then uh, God can God can work in our world. And yeah. so, the beginning of the universe yep. and the resurrection, the two central miracles in Christianity, and um, so anyways, I think that's important to look at. So if the resurrection happened, then God's yeah. stamp of approval is on Jesus. And what did Jesus think Yeah, and, about the Bible? Yeah, and just to kind of tease that out a little bit, the only way he could have actually risen back to life, right, to kind of tease out the logic a little bit further there, is he didn't just die for like 30 seconds and then was resuscitated, didn't die for three minutes, not even three hours, but the claim is three days that he was dead, right? And we know that he actually died because everyone dies. And so with a death like that, a Roman crucifixion, very brutal, very gruesome, um, and being dead for such a stretch of time, the only way he could have actually come back to life is if there is a being who has the ability to create life, has power even over death itself, a being that we would call God. That's the only one who would have the ability to actually bring someone back from life like that. And then the question is, well, why would God do that? Why would God choose to raise Jesus in exactly the way that Jesus taught and predicted. And it seems to be the most likely reason why God would do that is to place his stamp of approval on him and to say that he is exactly who he says he is. Um, And so just teasing out that second point a little bit more. And then the third point is, uh, following that, if Jesus is alive and he is Lord, then what he taught about Scripture should be accepted. Exactly. (laughs) So what did he he teach? And that was the point of Sunday's message. We looked at... um, a collection of statements Jesus made about the Old Testament. I honestly think that's a more simple argument than the New Testament, because by the time Jesus was around the first century, the Septuagint existed, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was packaged together in the way that we see the Old Testament today. Now, this is interesting. I didn't have time to dive into this, but it also included the Apocrypha. Um, Trevor, for our listeners who don't know, what's the Apocrypha? Yeah, the Apocrypha are works that are, uh, I guess, in some ways, like, associated with the Bible, but uh-huh. they're not included within the canon itself. So the Church has deemed uh, throughout Church history that these works don't stand up to the same... Uh, they, they don't hold the same merit. They're not inspired in the same way or infallible. Mm-hmm. Um, another way of looking at it is 66 books written across a 1,500-year period, several different languages, over 40 different authors, and they all make sense together. Mm-hmm. When you try and throw the uh, Apocrypha into the mix, yeah. it doesn't fit. It gets a little bit confusing. It yeah. doesn't meet some of the tests that we're going to look at mm-hmm. today uh, for whether uh, one of these documents should be seen as authoritative or not. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about those tests. But yeah, the Apocrypha is interesting. Um, it, it, it existed in the Septuagint in the first century um, and then was... Uh, separated out, uh, you know, I, I think there can be some helpful things in there, but it's not authoritative on that level. I think it was, when was it separated out? Do you know off the top of your head? It was, it was late, because the Catholic yeah. Church still includes 
it, yeah. as far as I know. So what I what I remember learning in uh, in Bible college and seminary was that um, they were essentially included on like a second level. So they were... Like an appendix. Yeah, yeah basically appendix. like an appendix until the Council of Trent, which I want to say 16th century, 1500s. Yeah, 1500s, yeah. When Luther uh, was like, no, we're not doing that anymore. And then the Catholic... <laughs> so in response to what Luther did uh, with the Protestant Bible, in the, the Catholic Church and the Council of Trent established fully that these are fully on board mm-hmm. uh, with the other 66 books. Yeah, it's interesting. Different church traditions, and when I say traditions, that's maybe a little misleading, different cultural expressions of the local church treated certain books differently. Like, for example, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know, somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, but the Greek Orthodox Church doesn't include... Re- includes Revelation, but doesn't teach from it or read it. It's a just mm-hmm. part of their cultural expression, I guess. Um, we wouldn't do that, and I have. I think we could talk about why. I think it does meet the test. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting how, you know, for a long time, those um, books from the... 400 silent years, so to speak, those apocrypha mm-hmm. type of books um, were included, but not included now, and yeah. I think there's good reason for that. But anyways, the Septuagint existed. Jesus uh, refers back to the law, uh, prophets, Moses, and the Psalms, mm-hmm. basically all of the Old Testament. I mean, yeah. Jesus d- does that, and so that's uh, that's his approach to the Old Testament. We looked at those passages where he, he applies them, he upholds them, he uh, preaches from them, he submits to them, he has others submit to them. So pretty clear that he looks at the Old Testament in the same way as we express our doctrinal statement. (laughs) Jesus, you could Mm -hmm. say, Jesus Mm -hmm. saw the Old Testament as inspired and infallible and the supreme authority for faith and life in the first century. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. Now, while we're on the Old Testament, um, Trevor, Mm -hmm. let's do a little bit of work on the Old Testament canon. I mean, how did we get to these... Uh, 39 books in the Old Testament. I mean, there's a lot of them. They're in different genres and styles. How did that get packaged even into the Septuagint in the first century and, and even now? Um, let's talk about canon. Maybe let's talk about the canon of the Old Testament there for a little bit. Canon of the Old Testament. Yeah, all right. since we're on the topic. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. So here we go. What does the word canon mean? Any, you know off the top of your head? Gosh, I used to. <laughs> it's like, on it's a like pi- standard, It's right? a standard of the rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the standard, authoritative, ruling set of documents, you could mm-hmm. say. It's it's not like uh, cannon off a boat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> There's one in. One in, not two. It's not Greek for... off a boat. <laughs> yeah, it's not... It's, it's Greek for rule or standard or measuring stick or, or something like that's that. Right, yeah. So that's what canon means. And texting canon is a is a, you know, a critical study of how we came to these texts and how we came to these conclusions. And so, you know, the Old Testament is, is a bit challenging uh, when it comes to these uh, canonical issues, because uh, Moses wasn't there when Adam and Eve were made, right? right Who right. was, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what, what you have is um, Moses later on authoring um, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. And, um, you know, how did, how did it happen? Did it, did it drop out of heaven? Well, you know, the most likely uh, way that this happened is really in a few stages. I wanted to take people through these stages, um, is that during ancient Israel, you had these speeches and sayings that, that were very, very common, this oral tradition, you know, mm-hmm. that Moses, um, as a, a leader, would speak for God. And uh, I think there's good evidence to trust that he was authoritative, 
both in the miracles he performed and the many things that accompanied his life. Mm -hmm. But so he would give these speeches. They were, in an oral tradition, by the way, it's not like, oh, that sounds like a game of telephone. Oral tradition, that was how it worked. You did not get that wrong. Mm -hmm. Oral tradition was ironclad. Yeah, you had a whole community to protect the the, kind of the integrity of the material. Exactly. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. just so that people know, like, yeah, if you're thinking, that sounds so odd... Yes, it's because you live in the 21st century, and mm-hmm. we d- that's just not part of our culture or what we do or how we record things. Very normal at that time. Exactly. Nothing yeah. strange about that. It was the uh, it was the way communication was transferred. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. Like, I uh, <laughs> I have a, a, a really big email. What's it called when you don't delete your emails? Is there a word? Well, I just don't delete my emails very well. <laughs> so I have, like, I have a lot. But I, but I save them there sometimes. And I know that I can go back to a previous statement in an email and say, look, it's right here. This is proof. We look to those type of things to codify and keep important yeah. information. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have that, obviously. Um, so for them, it was an oral tradition. And so mm-hmm. essentially, you have these speeches or sayings that were gradually collected into various books. The books were put together in collections like the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, the Pentateuch. And then uh, by the 2nd century B.C., during the Maccabean reign, it's like, okay, we gotta, we got to translate these to Greek, and we got to package them together. And so that's how the Old Testament was, was, was packaged, so to speak, in one group of texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. So that's, that's an important thing to realize. I think there's a couple other things on the Old Testament that, that are probably worth um, mentioning. Uh, only 10 of the 39 books do not have direct quotes in the, in the New Testament. So this is interesting. Hmm. The New Testament's use of the Old Testament is another way we see evidence for the value and authority of the Old Testament. Um, mm-hmm. Those 10 are Judges that, that aren't included. Judges, Ruth, Ezra, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Obadiah, Jonah, and Zephaniah, directly quoted. However, we hmm. see allusions to them... Um, all over the place. So yeah. the New Testament writers included approximately 250 express Old Testament quotations, um, and if one includes indirect or partial quotations, the number jumps to more than a thousand uh, Old Testament references, all the books except Obadiah at that point. So it's to be noted that the whole New Testament contains not even one explicit citation of the any of any of the Old Testament apocryphal works, okay? So that's an important reason why uh, people like Luther and yeah. You know, people like us would say not authoritative. We don't see them used and referenced in the New Testament like we do the rest of the Old Testament books sure. besides Obadiah. So I think that's an important thing to realize when it comes to ruling out the Apocrypha mm-hmm. as, um, as authoritative. So um, anyways, yeah. that's the Old Testament, Trevor, mm-hmm. in the Jesus argument for inspiration. Yes. Uh, what about the New Testament? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I will say Obadiah only has like 21 verses in it. So it's pretty short. Pretty short. Yeah. yeah. Give him a little grace for <laughs> yeah. not including it. <laughs> you looked that up fast in your Bible, too. I would have had to go to the table of contents to find Obadiah. Trevor, Trevor's, a, Trevor's a book man. Like he's, he's got down. <laughs> My kids are memorizing the books of the Bible in order, and yeah, they're not very far in, but it's Heck been yeah. fun. What did they call Lamentations? My kids got Maliphonations or something like that. They got it. They got it so wrong trying to say like, Lamentations. Doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the New Testament, the kind of the the idea is, um, it, you, I thought you had this really great language from Sunday as well. That within the Jesus argument for inspiration, he approved of the Old Testament, which is just what we saw. 
uh, in the kind of walking through all the different things that he said about it, and then even the way the New Testament speaks of the Old Testament, as you just mentioned. Um, but then when it comes to Jesus, he authorized the New Testament, because in some ways I think it's easy to assume that, you know, he, the records we have about him all took place before the New Testament was written, so how could he have ever said anything about it? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the truth is, uh, there's actually quite a bit that he says about it, um, especially through the chapters of John 14, 15, and 16, uh, and even the prayer in 17, when he's having that final uh, discourse, that final teaching that he's imparting to his disciples, and he kind of lays out this twofold promise to them that we see in other places, but especially right there, that they are going to be the ones who will carry uh, the message of his life, death, and resurrection, and the teachings that he had imparted to them that make sense of his life, death, and resurrection. So they will be the ones who will carry on Mm -hmm. that teaching that he had given to them. That's the whole reason why he chose them to be with him in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then second, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will guide them into truth, will remind them of what he taught them, and will ensure the accuracy of what they teach uh, and it's actually those teachings that like shaped the early church in an oral way, mm-hmm. and then eventually towards the end of their lives were formed into the writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm-hmm. and then the New Testament letters are all included within that as well. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to talk about it. So by the time you get to passages like 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, most people start there. We've worked our way to that conclusion, sure. and that statement is not circular at that point. It's upholding what Jesus said. They knew they knew they were fulfilling what Jesus said. When Peter talks about Paul's writings as Scripture, that is profound. Yeah. Um, Peter was there the day that Jesus said those things that John would, would later write down. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's not circular at that point. It's supporting what Jesus said. It's Jesus pulling off what he said he would do. And of yeah. course, if he pulled off what he said he would do in terms of his death and resurrection, he can pull off what he says he will do in terms of having people uh, be eyewitnesses, uh, authoritative writers testifying. I, I know that's a strange word, but let's use it in the courtroom sense, mm-hmm. um, testifying of what is true about him. And at one point, he says, the Holy Spirit will lead you into truth, and it's from me anyways. And so mm-hmm. that's just a really important um line of reasoning, that we started with a historical Jesus, and we've worked all the way through to Jesus pulling off what he said he would do in terms of those passages that often sound circular, but now we know they're actually not. They're fulfilling Mm -hmm. what Jesus said Mm -hmm. earlier in our expression of this argument. And so um, if that's all true, to your point, he authorized the writing of the New Testament, and uh, he endorsed and approved of the old. And mm-hmm. God's stamp of approval is on Jesus, and we know that because of the resurrection. And Jesus' stamp of approval is on both the Old and New Testament. We should accept this doctrine. That was yeah. Sunday's conclusion. There yeah. you go. Yeah. There it is. There it is. So, okay, Eric, well, uh, Jesus, ha- how do we get these New Testament books? I mean, we've right. got 27 of them now. So let's talk about how these books wound up uh, in the canon. Um, yeah, if I'm listening, I'm thinking, okay, I'm tracking with you, but like, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What, when, when Paul was writing these letters, was the Holy Spirit like writing on the wall and Paul like copied it down? Like, I mean, like I'm imagining these things that, you know, like was there just this like little like voice in Paul's head? Like, yeah. I don't know, there's, there's questions that surround that now. Now I'm like, well, how did this work? Right. Yeah. Well, God used the personalities, the writing abilities, the gifts, the culture of individuals who would write and wrote through them. So you definitely mm-hmm. see a human hand on the writings. I mean, yeah. Paul truly was in prison, sat down one day and started to pin these letters, you know, through with people around him too, scribes, you know, his, mm-hmm. what's the word for that? 
Amen, Amen. What's the word oh, for somebody uh, who writes? Amenuensis. Yes, yeah. or Amenuensis, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I almost brought up like that movie. Am, Ama, what's that? What's Amadeus. The, yeah, 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 not that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not that one. Great movie. Yeah, Great movie. not that. Um, and that was a very uh, a normal way for a leader or you know spiritual leader or rabbi to to write in the first century. So you know, uh, not picturing Paul getting out his yellow you know notepad and started to pin these things. You know, it wasn't wasn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. that. But you have these letters, and so God used the human capacity of the of the authors, but of course was, uh, and we see this in Peter as well, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if it's like, well, that's a stretch, how would they be carried along by the Holy Spirit? Let's remember the Spirit was at work constantly, and it was evidenced in healings, uh, these miracles, these things that um, happened as a sign of the authority of these ones sent out, that's what apostle means, sent out by mm-hmm. Jesus. And so um, when we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit later, in this mm-hmm. series, I think uh, that'll make more sense. But uh, it, there's both a divine author and a human author at work in the writing of the New Testament. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a, quite a range, from what I understand, of what is um, believed by theologians of exactly you know how precise is that? Like, and I'm not trying to say is the Bible precise, but I'm saying in terms of like what was written down. Like, there's kind of a wide swath of thought on that even too, right? Like right. in terms of. Because you're saying there is a human human element to it, which there is. We see them writing to different audiences, having different styles, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's a question of like, yeah, was it was it a word for word dictation, or was it no, no. okay? Yeah. So, I, and I would and I would agree with yeah. with that too. I'm just trying to think from you know, there's people who could be on all pieces of the, the spectrum, right. right on that. And I think the first question we should ask is, do we actually have what they actually wrote? Uh, do we know what they said when they wrote those things? And so that's the area now, uh, and we'll get back to text and canon, but this is yeah, the yeah. Uh, the area now of, of textual criticism. Yeah. So without any original copies, how do we know what the originals said? And we mm-hmm. talked about that on, on, on Sunday, but we have over 5,000 early, early copies of these documents to compare and contrast, which outweighs every other work of ancient literature, right? Yep. And when I was in middle massively. school... Massively. Yeah, massively. When I was in school, mm-hmm. you know, we were taught about Julius Caesar, Gaelic Wars, uh, Homer's Iliad as as fact, that we know what it said. Well, we don't have any original copies of those either, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And we have very few copies after those of the original. Mm-hmm. We don't... Those copies, we have very few of those, and they were written much, much later. Yeah. So we have these manuscripts within, you know, sometimes 70 years, 100 years. Those... That is... That is incredibly close to know mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. what was actually said. I mean, um, that that's really interesting. So, like, take September 11th, this moment in, in our nation's mm-hmm. history. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everybody knows what happens. It has happened, and now mm-hmm. it's coming up on. I mean, what, when did it's over twenty years? It's ago over twenty now. years ago, mm-hmm. and no one bats an eye that we know exactly what happened on that day. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, well, I guess some do. If you maybe, dive maybe deep into YouTube, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we know what the we know part. what took place. We know yeah. what took what place. Happened. Yes, yeah, yeah. fair <laughs> enough. Um, so, anyways, to have these copies within seventy, a hundred years is uh, incredibly close. In, mm-hmm. in the you know the the uh, textual experts would say, and knowing what they said. So because we can compare and contrast all those copies, we, we can reconstruct the originals with 99.9% accuracy. Maybe one's, something's missing a comma. Maybe there's a letter out of place in one of them. But, mm-hmm. but rabbinical tradition in copying 
these uh, these documents. I mean, if you if you messed up, you know, there was mm-hmm. there's these rituals that they would go through to start over again. I yeah. mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't like whoops, missed it. I mean, it was they didn't so use precise. Out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, yeah, a community that was strict in the preservation, mm-hmm. like maintaining the integrity and the right. quality. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just to make sure everybody's clear listening. You know, the, having many copies really is super important because when you have many copies, you are able to just on a practical level look, go through each document, and have more basically data sets to understand what what is likely that was actually written down because as i'm comparing if i'm comparing a thousand things you know over each other yeah it's much easier to see you know oh there's this missing comma here there's yeah. this change letter here if you have 10 copies yeah it's much harder to do more data is better yep. we, you we can reconstruct that. the original and yeah. uh, and we'll get to translation in a little bit but your your English Bible is honest when we're not sure. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Totally, it's in yeah. the in the bottom. You know, most people skip over that, but that's helpful. Yeah. That's the the editors, the translators of that edition of your Bible saying, look, uh, this is this is missing. This word doesn't exist. It might be this or this. And mm-hmm. that's them saying in all those manuscripts, this was a big enough discrepancy to need to include it mm-hmm. so that you know. And that's in yeah, such yeah. a small case of of the the verses in the Bible and in no verse that is a key or core doctrine um, of biblical Christianity. Isn't it in Matthew? Isn't there something I'm trying to recall now, and I'm going to just show how much I'm forgetting from school, but in Matthew, I think there's a section with Jesus, um, then some versions will just state, like, this is not... I think it's in Mark. uh, Oh, is it Mark? There's a Mark. There's a a unique ending in Mark. There's a a unique ending to Mark. there's a section in John, the uh, the writing in the sand yeah. pat part, where it's like, this oh, isn't yeah, in the oldest yeah. manuscripts. Right. So they're honest about that. Yeah, yeah so you can and, go find those. Yeah, and so we should be open-handed in how we approach that section, knowing, okay, but it was included, it, you know, for some important reasons. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we could talk about that at another point. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. all right, so let's get back to the standard for whether something was included. Here's the easiest way to remember it. Um, for uh, the, the standard... For w- whether a book would be in the canon or not, the standard emerged in the first century. So perhaps someone's heard, well, the Bible wasn't, you know, packaged together until this, you know, third council in Carthage in 397 AD. So for, and those people just picked the list and said, this is it, because obviously those books must have supported their agenda at the time. Okay, scratch that. All right, just scratch that out. That is not accurate history. Uh, a movie came out, and it seems like a movie comes out like every every decade trying to poke a hole in this. And back when I was first a Christian, it was the Da Vinci Code. Oh, it yeah. was like, there's all these other books, Gospel of Thomas, Pseudopigrapha, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pseudo meaning yeah. fake writings. They, yeah. It was not written by Thomas. Um, and it's crazy to begin yeah. with. Yeah, if you just yeah. read it. The content. If you read it, you go, <laughs> yeah. whoa, this does not match up with anything else I know about. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is, it is very, very strange. Yeah. So I want to talk about how the standard of canonization emerged in the first century. Um, but I think the easiest way to talk about it is... Uh, the survival of the fittest argument. The survival of the fittest. It wasn't men who later on ruled these books out. The books that weren't included ruled themselves out because they weren't fit as a standard. Yeah. And those that were included were a fit based on some very important and logical standards. And I wanted to kind of uh, roll through these through these now. There's four of them, four kind of standards that, that I point to. And there's mm-hmm. other ways to talk about it. The first standard is it's ancient. It had to be old, all right? It had to be from the first century, from the time of Jesus. It had to be an old document. Later documents were not included because they didn't meet that test of ancientness. That's not a word, but 
yeah, they didn't meet that sense. test. They, mm-hmm. they were written too late to be included. That was one of the tests. Yep. The next test, it had to be apostolic. From the first followers of Jesus, their associates. It had to come from somebody who was an apostle, mm. an eyewitness to what Jesus said and did, or a close, close, close acquaintance yeah. yep. of what um, uh, Jesus said and did. The third test, and this is a big word, is the test of orthodoxy. Does it gr- agree with the other things that have already been written? Mm-hmm. So were the core uh, truths in the document, did they, did they match, did they meet up with clear, historic, orthodox Christianity? And the fourth test is... Uh, this is a big word, but I, you know, it'll make everybody sound it. really smart. Yes. Catholicity. It's a good scrap. Another word. way, another way to talk about it: universality. Yeah. Catholic means universal, and so was there widespread usage and acceptance among the Christians in the local churches of this document. Mm-hmm. So, for the earliest Christians, the three categories of orthodoxy, apostolicity, and antiquity um, uh, needed to be uh, at play. Um, and the assumption was that eyewitness testimony was authoritative. So the early church collected and protected documents that fit that, mm-hmm. okay? So um, that is really an important thing. They rejected things that did not, rejected books that didn't fit that, like the Testament of Hezekiah, the vision of Isaiah, the books of Enoch, the secrets of Enoch, the book of Noah, the gospel of Thomas, the prayer of Joseph. You could go on and on. Those sound like they might be biblical. And so it's easy for people to make a case, you know, on the New York Times, this book should have been included. You're like, well, it sounds biblical, so I guess it probably should have been. Mm. No, it does not meet, it does not meet the standard. Mm -hmm. So, Trevor, anything you want to add to that? Um, I think... Just like the, like a lot of the letters in the New Testament, right? Like the Ephesians, for example, um, in Galatians, Philippians, these letters were written by Paul, for the most part, to specific churches. Ephesians seems to be more of like a circular letter that, that was written to the churches in Ephesus, city of Ephesus. So they're written to real groups of p- people, uh, communities of faith, churches, so they could read the letters aloud uh, in the hearing of the community when they gather together. Basically the same thing that we do now on Sundays, where right. we yeah. uh, look to different passages to unpack them, teach them, explain what they mean. Um, and so church usage as well. That, that these, were the, these were the letters, these were the books, these were the documents that the church used and found the most benefit from. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. someone might ask, well, why didn't they like write it down even sooner? Let's remember, they were busy founding the church, not creating a canon. Yeah. You know what I mean? They yeah. were at work doing that, but over time, these oral traditions for the Gospels needed to be written down as the apostles and the first eyewitnesses were starting to die off. And so then it became time to write them down. Um, but from very early on, these things were, these works from these apostles, these letters were collected, protected, and preserved mm-hmm. because they were seen as authoritative. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a New Testament document needed to meet those four tests. Mm-hmm. Not everyone meets the test the same way. There were some that were later editions because people were not sure if they met, met that test. So mm-hmm. the book of Hebrews would be one of those. But because of how strong it meets the test of orthodoxy and the mm-hmm. explanation of the mm-hmm. gospel... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although maybe the um, the authorship was in in debate, um, mm-hmm. we're not yeah. sure who wrote that Still one. In yeah. 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 yeah, but because it met the other three tests so strongly, mm-hmm. it was later included, and I think that's and that's that's right. They yeah, got that yeah. they got that one right. Yeah. So I think that's important. Um, the other thing too that's so interesting is that the early church fathers, I mean, third century theologian Origen, is recognizing 
this canon very early on. I mean, mm-hmm. very early on it was accepted before it was packaged as the Bible. It's like, well, how did Origen know to accept that? Because everybody was accepting these documents very early on because of how well they met the test. And so um, I think that's an important thing uh, to remember in this process. It's um, almost like the it, canon was culture before it was policy. Exactly. And isn't that how SMCC works? Yeah. <laughs> right? You've got things in your culture that are lived out, and then it's like, well, Paul Roby's moving on, better write these things down. Yeah, and yeah. so we did. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that that actually, um, that, that actually makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, the doctrine of canonicity is the church's affirmation of the belief that the 66 books of the Bible comprise the only inspired books that there are. And because they are inspired, no other books are. They have a unique divine authority by which we follow in our life and belief uh, in, what they, in what they teach. Um, Man, I could go into that even more, Adam. How are we doing on time? Do we got to pick we'll, it up just a little bit? We'll have to, yeah, we'll have to, yeah, keep moving along. We're going to get more in. One thing I just want to give a quick note about again if there's a listener that's here that is like, wow, this is so technical and detailed, I can't even wrap my mind around this, realize this. We look at a lot of these things, even from the, the first century and the church and all these things, those people were motivated by um, and understood the resurrection. So if you're not at the point that you, understand or believe the resurrection this might be way down the road for you in terms of like what we're talking about yeah um, so do first things first figure out what you believe about the resurrection yeah and then move into some of these pieces that's that's yeah. how the best format so let's be. wrap up text and canon with this the canon is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of the books does that, does that make sense? Say it one more time for the people in the back. The, yeah, and for you. The canon is a list. <laughs> the canon is a list. And when you think about when it was canonized, you know, mm-hmm. it's very easy to say it was in like 397 right, right. at this, uh, you know, third synod of Carthage. And it's like, well, why did they... What I'm trying to make so clear is that in the first century, these authoritative writings were accepted as such because of the weight that they held based on the authorship, what was included, the time in which they were written, and the universal acceptance inside of the local church. So they were authoritative from day one. Yeah. So the canon, you know, when you look mm-hmm. at the table of contents in your Bible, the canon mm-hmm. lists the authoritative books. Yeah. It's not the authoritative list. Ah, yeah, you're tracking with me. That's like great. it recognizes their authority that they already had. It doesn't bestow it. it doesn't upon establish one hundred percent. Trevor, all the way from Chicago with that gold right there. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> right. Do you remember what you just said? Uh, something like it. Uh, so, <laughs> so the canon it recognized the authority that the writings already had. It did not bestow it upon them. Yeah, hundred percent. Great way of thinking about it. All right, so we've done text and canon and. Um, Wow, that was a mouthful. So let's go to translation next. Can we just talk a little bit about how the Bible then is translated? Because there's a lot of listeners who are going, okay, so which one do I read? Do I need to go learn Greek? Do I read the NIV? Do I read the King Jimmy? Like, what do I What do I go with in terms of translation? So Trevor, just take us through that quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, well, we have a wealth of options if you are an English speaker, uh, mm-hmm. which is a nice thing. And uh, there's kind of two different... Um, there's like two different poles that translations fall between uh, in different translation styles. One would be dynamic, which is going more thought for thought. And so it'll be a little bit uh, looser, t- tend to be a little bit easier to understand. And at times where uh, they'll kind of make interpretive decisions uh, in where it could be a little bit more vague, they'll actually, like the NLT at times, will make a decision, uh, I guess to get into a little, like there'll be moments within Greek grammar 
where someone who understood Greek would know exactly what was meant because of word order, the, the casing, the way that things were said, they would understand. Um, and so there's times where if you just translate it word for word, a more literal way, more wooden way, uh, there's not clarity. Mm-hmm. And so the dynamic mm-hmm. translations will take that understanding of the Greek language and interpret it and render it in a way that makes sense for us. Whereas, mm-hmm. uh, so like NLT, the message, uh, those would fall in that camp. Yep. Whereas more wooden, word for word, which uh, uh, a little, yeah, more wooden, uh, that would be mm-hmm. like the ESV would probably be kind of uh, yeah. more leaning in that it's direction. NASB, New American and, Standard. Yeah. Yep. Yep. NIV is kind of right in the middle. Sure. King and that's James what we preach from. Yeah. 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 And NIV is in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. King James has its own set of unique challenges. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. First of all, the old English in there, because of our the way our Western world has approached the King James, it's easy for it to sound extra spiritual. Right. It is not any more extra spiritual. Yeah. In fact, Trevor, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've been able to go back to more original, uh, more, what am I trying to get at? Yeah. Uh, older transcripts, older, or, or, I can't say that, older, <laughs> older copies since the King James was translated. Yeah, yeah. Like, like Adam was saying earlier, if you look at the manuscripts as data, we have more data and better data uh, that our Greek uh, manuscripts are based upon now, like kind of putting together what the originals were. And the translations that we have, like the NIV, NLT, NASB, uh, those are based on on a more data and better data than, yep. the, than the King James was. Yep. So that's mm-hmm. translations, uh, getting Greek into English. You have to have some philosophical assumptions built into how to do that. And mm-hmm. I'm grateful for all the, the many uh, versions, translations of the Bible that, that we have, and for different purposes, mm-hmm. those yeah. uh, translations stand out, you know? Mm-hmm. So NIV at SMCC, because we want it to be clear. Uh, yeah. NASB, when I study on my own sometimes, the message when I'm looking for a colorful uh, yeah. approach uh, yes. mm-hmm. to something, uh, especially in poetic parts of mm-hmm. the Bible. Um, so that's really that's really helpful. Um, so, so question here, mm-hmm. I think, from if I'm a listener hearing this... Um, Boy, is is there like a more, I mean, you kind of already said it, but is there a more spiritual version of this? Should I be trying to learn Greek so I can actually like, quote, read the actual like Bible? Like maybe I'm just trying to figure out what should I be doing, right? Like that, you know, there's lots yeah. of versions. So what does that mean? You know, what does it mean about the the authenticity yeah. of the Bible? I'll say, I'll say two things. Um, I'll say two things to that. We can trust our English translations. Those Greek and Hebrew scholars are amazing at what they do. Um, They are experts, and they've gotten it right. Uh, I learned Greek just so that I... And then I learned, wow, I can read in English. (laughs) It's the exact same. (laughs) Uh, So that was really valuable. Although although Greek is kind of fun. I think I know enough Greek to uh, get myself in trouble, probably. There you go, yeah. Um, The other thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, the Gospels were originally written, the New Testament were originally written in, in... very common language, because it was for the people, it was for the masses, and so I think it's very appropriate to just go, okay, I don't need to uh, dive into uh, a Greek language necessarily, uh, because God's intent is that I hear this in my language. Mm. And I think that's that was always an important part of the spread of the gospel, so I think it's fine to read it, read the Bible uh, in a translation that... Um, that makes sense, that you can relate to. I think that's yeah. really important. So one yeah. thing that I've, I've, I've heard, and, and I agree, and I think this goes along with what you're saying, is you know, the gospel is, is a... Reli- and I'll just put this short. The gospel is something that pretty uniquely transcends culture, time, and language. There's lots of religion yeah. out there that is... It has to stay in its lane, right. in its language, in its context, in this people group, right? 
Um, but uh, that's not the case for yeah. the gospel. And you have to yeah. become like that people group to embrace that religion. The gospel right. is every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Yeah. Right. I absolutely, I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so we've talked about translation uh, just a little bit. Uh, what about interpretation? What are some key methods for how to read the Bible for the listener at home, Trevor? Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of things like context, know who the author is. You know, what are some key principles for interpreting the Bible, um, if you're just going to pick it up today, because you've been kind of inspired, not in the inspiration sense we're talking about, yeah. but you've listened to this, you're like, man, I got to I gotta get into I gotta get into God's Word. Um, yeah. What are some things somebody should keep in mind? Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be confusing. We shouldn't read yeah. it and expect it to be like um, a meme, you know? I mean, this is written to a, a whole different group of people, different mm-hmm. time, in a different language, like, and so it's not p- certain parts of the Bible immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. relate and have great impact for God so loved the world. Like that passage, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has shown up in so many places because of how immediately it makes an impact on a Western person where other passages, you know, book of Leviticus or something, incredibly relevant. We're going to talk about it later in the series, but not, doesn't, doesn't uh, apply as quickly. So yeah. Trevor, any interpretation ideas for, for folks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I've heard this other church say this, um, that... Uh, the Bible's not written to you, it's written for you. Yeah. And that distinction is really helpful in yeah. that you're, uh, you're kind of peeking in on another conversation that's been recorded for your benefit, but you right. are not part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having that in mind. I think with that, a um, couple principles just to keep in mind, context is huge, and that in two different ways, in a literary sense. So mm-hmm. just within the document itself, keeping track of what's the purpose of the document, what came before the passage you're reading, what comes after, and how does all of that give uh, meaning mm-hmm. to what you're reading? Um, and I think, and then the second angle would be histor- historical context. Mm-hmm. And so, when was it written? Um, included within that is both author and audience. Who mm-hmm. wrote it? Yep. Who did they write to? Why did they write it? Yep. And honestly, if you are um, you know trying to figure these things out, one of the most helpful resources is just go on YouTube, type mm-hmm. in the Bible Project for yep. whatever book you're reading. In yeah. like five to ten minutes, you get an illustrated video that unpacks all of that and orients you to the book that you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, those are a couple of things, though. Literary context, historical context, author, audience. Um, yep. Anything you'd add? Yeah. Well, then I think once you have all that... Uh, in mind, you're looking for a timeless truth. I mean, the Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. And so you have to begin to form a key theological truth from that passage. And so I like to think if Paul were in the room, would he say, yep, that's what I wanted to say? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I just think about that. Is this a timeless truth? And then that timeless truth has multiple applications in our world and in modern day. So uh, timeless truth, um, that kind of one overarching principle, the main idea from the text, I don't get to make that up. That's not different for me than it is for you, Trevor. It's a mm-hmm. timeless truth. What might be different is how that timeless truth applies to your life, applies to my life, based on what we've been through, who we are, our own mm-hmm. our own story. And so you're looking for that timeless truth, um, and then you're going to apply that into your life. So those are some, those are some important things. One, one other thing, too, is... Uh, a word study would be valuable. The, the words inside of the Bible, um, we we use words differently. Um, mm-hmm. Words can have a range of meaning, and so sometimes a word, when we yeah. look at it, the first impression we have with a passage is not the uh, the accurate interpretation. First impression is not always an accurate interpretation. You got to yeah. dig deeper into the words and the structure, the context um, to move to move forward. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that gets people reading. Something yeah. else, Trevor. 
Yeah, just one example of that. Uh, as we talked through inspiration, this is more theme than word, but mm-hmm. um, we talked about inspiration in a very technical sense, which I think is, is hopeful, helpful, very beneficial. Uh, one neat thing that I find with the doctrine of inspiration is if you look at you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, mm-hmm. and then he goes on to unpack in all the ways that it's helpful for us. And with him characterizing it, Paul being the author there, characterizing it as God-breathed, he's kind of picking up on a theme that if you go very, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, mm-hmm. when God formed uh, the very first human being, Adam, right? It says that uh, he actually gave him life by breathing into him. Mm. And so life is what is brought about through God's breath, mm-hmm. right? That's from the very beginning. And Paul picks up on that theme. He knows that when yeah. he's writing 2 Timothy 3.16. Right. And so the the Bible, the 66 books, these documents are given for us as the, the product of God's breath, God's Word, right. to bring us life. Man. So when the author of Hebrews says the Word of God is alive and active, mm-hmm. it's the same type of thing woven throughout. Yeah. And what we're getting at there is this same theme throughout all of these books that make up the Bible, that that uniformed uh, key truth we see. And that helps us uh, uh, know that these texts, especially what you just read from 2 Timothy, what I just quoted from Hebrews, meet, um, meet the standard of orthodoxy, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they all fit together, and that's really important. Now, there might be some astute listeners, and we're, we're getting ready to wrap this up, but there might be some astute listeners thinking, SMCC doesn't have the word inerrancy in their doctrinal statement. Do you think the Bible errors. Um, I'm just, I, I want to unpack that for a little bit. We have infallibility, not inerrancy, to get at the unfailing nature, uh, that it is not flawed and perf- in purpose. We said perfect in purpose. Uh, inerrant is not in there. Um, Trevor, what are your thoughts on inerrancy? And, and I don't even know if we have the same thought, and yet, yeah. you know, it's not in our doctrinal statement, but I'm just curious, and, and then I'll unpack why I think it's not in there and why I still like to use the word. Um, but Trevor, what are your thoughts on inerrancy? Yeah, yeah. I think at times, uh, in some ways it can be helpful, and in some ways I think it can be confusing, um, because infallible has, uh, in some ways, just a clear meaning, you know, that it's mm-hmm. it's without error in its intended communication, and what it's, like you said, perfect in purpose. Yep. Whereas inerrancy sometimes can be, um, you know, just, just kind of without error at all, and I think sometimes it... it the way that you go with that, the direction that you take inerrancy is dependent upon how you actually go about hermeneutics. Right. And so if you're dealing with bad hermeneutics, you can end up kind of affirming some, I think, some problematic things, that the Bible is saying things that it's really not saying, mm-hmm. uh, and it just gets you into, uh, I think, some some difficulties. Yeah, sure. I think uh, what tends to happen with the word inerrancy, and once again, words have a range of meaning, but what can tend to happen, and this is probably why I think it's not in our doctrinal statement, is that people read, uh, take their 21st century understanding Mm -hmm. of inerrancy and error and apply it back to the Bible in a way that's completely unfair. And that's what you mean by poor hermeneutic. That would be a poor hermeneutic. Hermeneutic's sort of your approach to reading the Bible. Um, And so, uh, but... Other people might say you should always include inerrancy because if God wrote it and He is perfect and He does not err, then the Bible is, of course, inerrant. And so that's why we go back to inerrant in purpose, inerrant in original intent, inerrant in what it set out to do, inerrant in its impact. Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, to your point, you get into some weird territory when you're like, okay, well, the manuscripts uh, differ on this small little piece, so is that an error? 
Mm-hmm. I say no, it's not an error in intended impact. It's not an error in its purpose. Someone could say, well, it seems like an error to me if they can't get that right. If God couldn't get that right, it seems like an error. And I just think that's a poor hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we take the technical, our technical understanding of how language and literature should work from the 21st century and apply it back, it's a poor hermeneutic and an errancy uh, can tend to be abusive in the way it reads the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, 21st century yeah. understanding of an errancy can abuse the text in a way that the text wasn't intended. Yeah. Um, but, but God, of course, does not err. And so I do think the Bible is an errant in what it intended to accomplish. Yeah. And that's where infallible comes in, because I think it, it in the word infallible gets at the understanding and definition of an errant that I have, whereas when someone just says inerrant, it just takes a lot longer in the conversation to explain <laughs> that word. Yeah. So I think that's why that word doesn't show up in our doctrinal statement. Uh, we are not saying that God errs. We are not saying that the Bible errs in what it intends to do. What we are saying is that our culture's definition of an errant See an inerrant without air um, does not set up for a good hermeneutic when it comes to reading that into the Bible. So, yeah. wow, we've covered a lot today, guys. Um, I want to wrap up with this. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. <laughs> and yeah. now I think we know how we got there. The Bible, okay, text and canon, the 66 books, the standards of what needed, of, of the standards that had to be met by a document to make it. Uh, in, but it's not once again making it in, it's to just be authoritative Mm -hmm. in the time that it was written. The Bible, uh, when it speaks, okay, uh, what it says, the timeless truths, it's God speaking. Okay, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And if that's the case, um, my life must be formed by the truth of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do with this? Well, um, let's take some really punchy issues of today. Uh, you could take sexual issues. You could take the abortion issue. You could take politics. You could take uh, war and uh, evil. You could take all of that, and you could take your worldview, which you have, which, by the way, came from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Something yeah. speaks, and you embrace it, yeah, <laughs> whatever yeah. it might everyone be. Everyone has an authority, whether yeah. you're aware of it or not. Right. Yeah. 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 So you could almost say everyone has a Bible, whether you know it or not. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Meaning you yeah. have an authoritative source uh, for your worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh there is no source like the Bible because it's God. It's God's Word, mm-hmm. right? It is God's Word. It is from Him. Uh, it is for us. And when, when the Bible speaks, it is God speaking. So why wouldn't I allow it to shape every aspect of my worldview in the, in the most difficult of areas? Back to what Paul said to Timothy, it can correct me. If the Bible hasn't corrected you yet, <sighs> you might not be a Christian. Ooh, <laughs> man. Right? Yeah. Uh, it can uh, rebuke me. If it hasn't slapped you upside the face yet, (laughs) you might not have embraced this doctrine. Uh, You might not be a Christian. Um, You know, Christians are people of the book, so to speak. And that sounds so old school, you know? People might not expect these, you know, young 30-something leaders and tattoos, by the way. You've got tattoos, though. Yeah, yeah, and hipster (laughs) jeans to be like, we're people of the book. Um, But we are. Um, and after an hour-long podcast, I hope people understand why. So I just want to go back and affirm what we said in the message. Um, here's what it sounds like to make this doctrine a part of your doctrinal statement for life. I accept the Bible is inspired and alive because Jesus is. I accept that the Bible is infallible because Jesus is. I accept that the Bible is the supreme authority over faith and life because Jesus is. Now, one more small disclaimer as we wrap up. I've met a lot of Christians who sound like, when they talk about the Bible, they worship the Bible itself. The Bible is the written word that reveals to us the living word from John chapter 1. So we go 
to the Bible, we go through the Bible to worship the living word of the Bible. Ooh, and I think that on. is... <laughs> thanks, Adam. <laughs> I think that's just, uh, that's important. That's important to say. So yeah. uh, on Sunday, I stood up there with my great grandma's Bible from 1930, and I said, have you made this a part of your life? And if you haven't, this is an invitation to do so. Mm. So I think we should wrap up with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we got to, we got to, Get this to an end. We're going to be here back uh, uh, next week again, and um, we'll, we'll keep com- covering and going along with what our, our messages have gone through. And here's a few quick things you can do. If you're a listener and you've made it this far into the podcast, you can do a few things for me. Leave us a review on your podcast platform. That helps. Two, you might find it helpful if you like podcasts in general to just go ahead and um, find and subscribe to the SMCC Messages podcast. I just tried it in my app. If you just search SMCC, you will find it. Um, so then you can just make sure that you're not missing messages throughout the week. And also go ahead, if you haven't already subscribed to our YouTube channel, uh, you can always watch uh, SMCC online there as well. So those are all great things that you can do to stay in the loop, stay with us. Um, it helps us uh, as well to reach more people. So, so appreciate your time today. Eric, Trevor, appreciate your time. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks again for joining us for the Fully Delighted Podcast. If you enjoyed this hopeful and helpful resource, we'd love to have you leave us a review or share an episode with a friend. For more information about SMCC, please visit us at our website at smccutah.org. Thank you for trusting us with your time, and we look forward to having you back again soon.